Amen. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 11 as we're continuing on uh, after the Easter season, Holy Week, uh, into our sermon series there. And it has indeed uh, just been a sweet time for our family to be able to enjoy all that Holy Week brings culminating in Easter. And it is indeed a celebration. It was just a joy to be able to gather with you all and see this building full. So we are indeed encouraged to see uh, the work that the Lord has done in our midst to see us fill up to the brims. Um, this week, is, uh, Jeff is away as he is up in Canada. You might be praying for him just for rest and relaxation as he's with his dad. So he is traveling there and he'll be back. But it's a, a sweet opportunity for him to spend some time with his dad Earl up there. So it's uh, nice to be able to get away amidst everything going on. So um, one of the things that uh, we've seen here as we continue on in our book, uh, The Study of Mark, uh, is that Mark continues to shape this picture of everything that Jesus is doing within uh, the lives of his disciples starts to add some clarity to what he's focusing on. And we had this point in which he all of a sudden gets to this place where he enters into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry. And you should rightly feel this sense that this is kind of a climax of the story of all of a sudden Jesus has moved from the very fringes of all of God's people and he's traveled around healing, doing all of these different works and deeds and teachings. And then all of a sudden he's heading into the epicenter of everything that Israel held to and believed and loved. And he's heading into the temple. And as he comes in, everything that they've seen of Jesus, they are recognizing this man is certainly unique in his teaching, in his healing, in everything that he's about. And so as he comes into Jerusalem for the first time, as you would expect, there is rejoicing. There is praising from the people saying, this is certainly the man who is going to redeem us. And they have something very clearly in mind that they think he's going to do when they say this, but they are excited. And so Jesus, over the next couple of weeks, and as he is entering in here, he is coming into the temple in one sense, and then he comes and returns again, and then he'll return for a third time to teach. And there is something specific that he starts to frame about his purposes as he heads into the very center of everything that the Israel, uh, the Israelites would hold to and believe and trust in. And so as he heads in there, there is a sense that he starts to confront probably some of their idols, uh, some of the things that they hold very dear in their faith, in their religion. And he is confronting them in a way that is very uncomfortable to some, and to others it is miraculous and marvelous teaching. So if you have your Bibles, do turn to Mark chapter 11. We'll be picking up in verse 12 and continuing through verse 25. If you can stand with me. Uh, for the reading of God's Word. We'll read God's Word here and see what it has to say for us. This is God's Word. Mark 11, starting verse 12. says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you, fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when everything, every evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses." This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we look at these verses together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we're so thankful that you have given us so much to look to, to understand, to understand about your work in the kingdom, to understand about your work in our world to redeem us, to care for us, to cleanse us. Lord, we pray even as we come to this text, a familiar text to many of us in the church, Lord, would you bring our hearts to a better understanding of who you are, what you are doing, the things you would call us to, the ways you would ask us to repent, to turn from things we've held on to. Lord, would you use this text to soften us? Would you use this text to help us to release sin where we need to? And to turn to you. Lord, we do pray this this morning that we would be changed and encouraged and reminded of your goodness and your righteousness and your purposes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you will know certainly the game Jenga. This has been something that we have recently found once again because our kids are about the age where Jenga is lots of fun. And many of you who are veteran Jenga players will know some of the strategies of what this looks like and how to win at Jenga and also the perils of Jenga. And so one of the things that you start to recognize is that there's a little bit of strategy about what you do at the beginning has big impacts later. And if you start to take some of the bottom pieces too early, it's going to get a little exciting. And even if you do it at the beginning, everything still feels fairly solid. You start to move the pieces up right from the bottom, and everything's like, ah, I can do some pretty bold moves at this point and start to remove things and move it up. And as you get further and further up, especially as you get to the higher levels, one of the things you recognize is the tension rises, and your decisions that you made earlier start to come back and haunt you. And you might have the whole tower teetering on just one little block at the bottom, and then, for all those who are just lackadaisically pushing pieces out, all of a sudden you're recognizing we can't touch this table. And if someone comes up and just sits down and merely breathes on the table, you start to say, what are you thinking? And you're like, this is a very serious moment. I'm sorry I lost out of you, but this is very, very serious. And everything hinges on that little tiny piece at the bottom. And so one of the things you start to recognize is that we can see moments like this in our lives, in the world, in the church, where everything seems to be teetering, to be unstable, to be uncertain. And we start to recognize there's really nothing I can do at this point other than protect it, keep building, and it's not getting better. And one of the things we start to wonder is how are we going to fix it? How are we going to make it right again? This was one of the things they were wondering within the people of Israel, saying, we know we need to reestablish worship in the temple. We know we need to reestablish things the way they used to be, but we don't know exactly how to do it. And as Jesus enters in, he's starting to push the table a little bit, to push at those pieces that are very, very uncomfortable to be pushed. And he's saying, I am going to change things a bit, and it's going to be far different than you expect. And you start to realize that God does do a mighty work in the midst of his people. God has done a mighty work for all of the church, and it was something that caused a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anger, a lot of rage as he got to the very core and the center of some of the idols that people were holding on to in that day. So we recognize how are things to be made right? What is Jesus about? What is he doing? Well, there is certainly a sense that God is going to cleanse the temple, to cleanse his people, to make them right again, to make them right with him again. And he says, there is but one way that this is going to happen. Have faith in God. 
have faith in God. And there are many things that we start to see through these verses of what this faith brings to us as we trust Him, as we follow Him, as we see what He is going to do. And sometimes He is pushing on things that we don't believe He should do, but faith keeps us moving. Let's do look at verses 12 through 19 again as we see this start to be unfolded. The first thing I think we're going to see here is that faith in God, this type of faith in God, confronts our sin. Faith in God confronts our sin, verses 12 to 19. Let's look at this again, actually starting back up at verse 11, reminding ourselves that Jesus had already looked out at the temple, and he is heading back again here. So verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And, and he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. There is certainly something here that we see that is rather shocking to us as we get to know Jesus. This is a Jesus that I'm not used to hearing from. A Jesus that sounds almost random and vindictive, walking by a fig tree and just almost cursing it uh, out of the blue and then continuing into the table and starting to flip tables. And we start to wonder, is something wrong? Has something changed about Jesus' demeanor as he gets to this point? I mean, point in his ministry where all of a sudden he's being brought in, he's being celebrated, and then he starts to do something that we don't quite expect. And even as the first portion of the narrative, Jesus comes to this fig tree, he starts to already describe and explain that there is a turn. And he knows that this is going to be hard for us to follow. And he's saying to his disciples, continue to follow me. There is work to be done here, and it's different work than you might expect. And even in an illustration of a fig tree, he would show us this. This is not random. Jesus understood the cultural climate. He understood the way fig trees worked and operated. And this is described here as saying this was not the season for figs. And Jesus would have known this is the season for early figs. And the trees that had early figs would have produced many late figs in the fall and later on. And so he goes up to this and he's saying, look at this tree. Tons of evidence of life. Tons of evidence. It's leafed beautifully. There's something there that you would see in this arid climate. You'd say, this is a place where I find something good and sweet. This is something that you'd find satisfaction. And as he goes over to it, he recognized there's nothing on it. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And already you start to see that Jesus is teaching, even in the way he operates here. He's saying, as I walked up to this expecting that there might be some food here, as you rightly should, you see this tree that's alive, and there's nothing that God promised of fig trees that would be there. And so it is useless to me. It is not doing what it was intentioned to do. It's not doing the thing that it promised me when I walked over to it. And as he walks into the temple and he looks around the night before, he's saying something very similar, saying, are there the things there that the temple promises? Are there the things within the temple and the operation of the temple, what God intended the temple to be? And as they approach the temple, what did they find? They find money changers, sales to the poor at a profit for sacrificed animals, this outer ring within the temple 
being used for transactions like that. And it was not unusual that transactions would happen. They had a certain type of money that they had to bring for the temple tax. But this was not necessarily something they had to do in the temple. This was not something necessarily they had to do in the area reserved for Gentiles to be able to come to worship, the the nations to be able to come before their God and worship. And yet this is what they were doing. And he recognizes this is not what this temple is meant to be. And he quotes a few different things from Isaiah 56. All of a sudden, he's entering and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You've just made it a den of robbers. This is to be a house of prayer for the nations. God says to the people of Israel, I will bless you, I'll make you a great nation, and you shall be blessed, and you shall be a blessing to what? To all the nations. And even within the worship of God's people, God creates space, physical space within that temple to say, this is already meant to show that those who are not of the people of Israel are to have room to worship. Those on the fringes are allowed to come in. And they had said those people don't really matter. Those people don't need all of the space. We can use this the way we want. We can even charge them a profit. And Jesus indicts them heavily. He says from Jeremiah 7.11 that you have made it a den of robbers. The broken scenario of temple worship, the things that sent the people of Israel into captivity, the things that they remembered very well, that I was sent into the worst circumstances for many, many years because we disobeyed God. We did not do what God had asked us to do. Jesus is saying, that's still there. That's still in the temple. That harsh attitude, that heartless attitude towards your God, the things that I have commanded you to do, you've not done. You're still doing it. I still see it. And the confrontation of their sin is stark. And you should feel how stark it is as he enters in and he highlights their sin. And it is overlooked because the people don't necessarily want to listen to God in the midst of this. They want to say, it is about us. The core, the central people, it's about us, the ones who can enter into the middle. It's about us, and it really doesn't matter what we do. And Jesus is saying, you've missed the entire purpose. You're not producing the fruit you were meant to produce to be a blessing to the nations, to come and receive things from God, that this might be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus has very harsh words for them. He's indicting them. He's calling them out. And these are people who were very very careful. These are people who knew the law of God. These are people who were experts in it. These were people who knew exactly what to do to not be caught in sin. These were people who were as professional at religion as you can imagine. And Jesus uses some very harsh words and confronts their sin And he's reminding them of a very harsh text. Let's look at this together. Jeremiah 7, verses 8 through 11. I'll read this. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on and doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? Is this a place where you can live in your sin and gather together and hide in your sin, thinking you are righteous? They could walk past money changers charging a profit on the poor for sacrifices, a very lucrative business at the time, They were making lots and lots of money on this sacrificial system. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders who had kind of built all of this, who had trusted in everything that God had given, they would have been very defensive at this moment. They would have known we have a reason for doing everything that we do. Let me explain it to you. They would say, let's go to Deuteronomy 23, 19. It's not wrong for us to charge a prophet when we lend money to people, especially 
to those who are not in Israel, to the outsiders. In fact, God's law approves that type of action to charge that type of profit. And it became very lucrative for them to do this type of thing. And yet Jesus starts to confront their sins saying, even though you're able to do a few of those things, this does not belong in the temple. And he confronts this, and you can hear what type of response the people had. It was defensiveness, anger, malice, even fear. They want to destroy Jesus as they hear these things. They were seeking ways to do this. How dare he confront what we've done? This is often something that we can do in our own midst, our own circles, to hear the things that God has called us to do as the church, the things that he has said, these are for you to do in worship. This is the way that you can come before me. And it is so tempting just here and there to add expense to the gospel even. To go with one another and say, well, there are a few extra things that you need to do to be right with God. There is a few extra good works We surround ourselves with things that kind of protect ourselves. We surround ourselves with our own justifications in these areas. What is it that we are called to do as believers? What is it we are called to be? It is faith in God that rightly brings us before God. It is faith in God that is the foundational principle that we are to hold to. And it is the thing that has always been the primary principle for God's people. They thought it was this temple that was their sanctuary. They thought it was their righteous actions. They thought it was the way that they carried out the sacrificial system. They thought all of these different things were creating their position. And yet it was always God himself. Faith in this God himself. This is what it was meant to be. And they had blocked everyone from that type of relationship with God. And oftentimes, we can find ourselves even doing this. And even though there's great corruption in the temple and their system, the temple was not Jesus' problem. It was the faith in the temple itself, the physical structure, the faith in the system itself, the process that those things could make you right with God that Jesus is confronting Just because God confronts our sin, it doesn't mean we're going to like it. As there's moments within our heart that we recognize, I'm not relying only on Jesus Christ and Him alone for my righteousness. As I come before Him, as I come before God and worship, recognizing it is quite literally that relationship that I have with God that drives everything else. If something else gets confronted... Oftentimes, you'll know what happens when your sin gets confronted. There's a defensiveness to say, well, it's a good thing, though. (laughs) Well, this is good and right for me to do, and let me show you why. Let me show you the five proof texts that I've gathered around my reasoning for doing this. And this doesn't mean that we aren't justified in our reasoning at times, but there is a sense that recognizing that what is your response when Jesus confronts your sin? Oftentimes we know the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, but as God confronts sin, the first response is going to be anger, frustration, irritation, fear. And as you sense those things rising in you, when God confronts sin, what do you do with it? Do you double down on your anger, frustration, fear, resentment of those who call you out? This is one of the things that is beautiful within a fellowship of believers. That as we enter into home groups and worship with one another, we can actually see God's word plainly, call out sin at times. And what is going to happen? Well, I think if you're like me, the first response is your heart is going to leap. And you're going to say, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you bring that before me? How dare you? Now, there is a certain way that we're to do this as brothers and love and care with one another, but there is a recognition within your own heart. As people call out sin, my first response is probably going to be anger, frustration. And in faith in God, 
we don't always expect that my faith in God might cause a bit of anger in my soul. In fact, it's walking me through that anger, helping me to let go of those things, helping me to say that as God messes with those foundational blocks that I thought were so important to my life, as he starts to yank at those, recognizing even though I might be fearful, angry, uncertain about what's going to happen when that gets ripped out, I have faith in God. God helps us to process everything that is going on of everything that we're holding on to so tightly right there. I don't know if many of you have actually read the book. Oftentimes, uh, I forget just how rich Lord of the Rings it actually is. That is another thing we're doing right now in our families. We're reading, rereading Lord of the Rings. We tried it a couple years ago. It was uh, a fail once we got to the Council of Elrond. Now we're back at it, and it's good again. So we've, we've jumped into it, and one of the things that is so rich in the actual books is the way that Tolkien talks about the ring, the way he talks about evil, and really just this illustration of sin and what this looks like. And I'll just read this portion to you as it reminds me very much of what it feels like to let go of sin, to turn that over to God. It says this, Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket. This is after he's talking to Gandalf about all the perils of the ring and where it came from. So Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again, and he looked at it, and it now appeared plain and smooth, without mark or device that he could see. The gold looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its color, how perfect was its roundness. It was an admirable thing and altogether precious. When he took it out, he had intended to fling it from him into the very hottest part of the fire, but he found now that he could not do so, not without great struggle. He weighted the ring in his hand, hesitating and forcing himself to remember all that Gandalf had told him, and then with an effort he made a movement as to cast it away, but he found that he had put it back into his pocket. That is a rich illustration as you think about it of those moments when you're saying, I know I need to let go of sin. I know that this needs to be cast out from my home, my family, my life, our church, those types of things we know that need to be gone from our midst. What is the temptation? Just like that, it, just that, that visual image of just taking it and sticking it back in your pocket. I'll deal with this later. And that story continues to develop and to develop. And this is certainly the thing that Jesus has come to confront. The fact that we can't quite let go of sin. He would die for that. He would actually have to rip us from the clutches of sin and deliver us from it and say, no longer will this thing have hold over you. And we don't always realize just how pervasive and how deadly sin is. And we just stick it back in our pocket. And even though Jesus just confronted sin here in a very radical way, temple worship was something that was good. Worshiping God was good, and yet it had taken a wrong spot within the life of Israel. So as Jesus is leading his disciples, as he's leading people to trust in God through faith, he is saying, faith in me will confront your sin. Faith in God certainly confronts our sin, but faith in God also opens our eyes. Faith in God opens our eyes. Let's continue looking. Verses 20 and 21 as we continue on here. It says this, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Such a miraculous little moment. I mean, Peter has walked with Jesus for all of these years, and he's been with him. He's seen miracle after miracle, and Jesus curses a fig tree, and it withers away, and he sees that, and he's like, oh, man, I can't actually believe it died. Can you, Jesus, can you believe that actually died? It's amazing. And there's something right here to see. Like, there is 
an ability for God to show us the thing that Jesus is saying, this tree is not what it promised itself to be, a place to find food, a place to find something nourishing for me. And as you came to it, I'm now reminding you, the physical evidence of this tree will now represent what it really is, a withered, dead, dying tree. No one is going to go to this place anymore for fruit. No one is going to return to that tree And you start to see the lesson Jesus might be teaching. He's saying, you go to this temple, this place to protect you, this place to forgive your sins is what you are saying it's doing, but you're really defending yourselves in your sins. You're hiding away in it. You're defending yourselves as a den of robbers is what he says. And it is very hard for us to imagine that, as it would have been hard for the people to imagine that this temple really had this nature about it. And a little further on, Mark 13, even as the disciples are leaving the temple after their third journey, and Jesus has begun to teach in its courts a little bit, and he's been talking about everything that he is about to do, one of the things that they say is they're leaving. They're looking at this structure, and they're saying, Mark 13, it says, look, teacher, One of the disciples said, what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As they're walking out, they're seeing something that is one of the great places in this entire city. In fact, probably the entire world as you think of it. Solomon's temple was immense. It was wonderful. And it was said that this is even more immense. This was even more grand. This was probably 35 square miles covering this entire area. And there were different courts and areas that they would enter into. The number of people that would come and go out of this place for worship and for sacrifice and for all the things God had designed it for, this was immense. And the people of Israel were very proud of this thing. They were very proud. And in fact, even those who were on the outside, those who were not Israelite, they would recognize it. They didn't come in. Herod, it's called Herod's temple. He couldn't even come into the center area. He had to stay out in the circle where all the Gentiles were. And the the Roman occupation, as you think of all the, the ways that they had to live under that type of rule, They actually had a little place on the outside just kind of defending it because they're like, we're not sure what to do with all these Israelites because if they turn, it's going to get messy. And so this thing is a massive center of everything that's going on in this city. And so as you look at it, you would do just what the disciples did. If you were to go visit it, you'd say, wow, that is unreal. The process of this sacrificial system would have been unreal to witness, to watch. It would have been unreal to see all that was accomplished. And the, the, well, the wellspring of knowledge that these teachers had would have been just intimidating. To say, these guys are serious about everything that is going on here. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't bear the fruit of everything that I want this temple to be. And in fact, I want to show that this is not the place that you are going to find what this promises. Just like that fig tree, it will be torn down, down to its roots. And he begins to show this to them, and it is hard to imagine It is hard to imagine anything else that could slightly compare to this. And Jesus is saying, I'm not only going to show you how broken this is, how it is not just the physical structure that you should find to be wonderful, but there is something far more beautiful that you will see. Psalm 118 teaches us what Jesus is tearing this down for. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This, is, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What seems like an abomination, the destruction of the temple, will be marvelous. The rebuilding of the temple upon something different to the point where we can't even compare the two, saying, 
that was good. This is better. This faith in God, this faith that God calls us to follow him with, it gets us to this place where we say, I'm not comfortable with you pulling these blocks out. And yet God's saying, I'm going to rebuild in a far better way than you can possibly imagine. And many still, of we look at the physical church today. We look at everything going on and we have a hard time seeing this, seeing the work that God is continuing to build after he's already accomplished this type of work. And oftentimes we do see broken aspects within the physical building of the church. Pride in leadership, arrogance amongst elder boards and leadership, sin, deceit, adultery at times, abuse, physical abuse, and even to our shame, sexual abuse at times, exists within the church. And we don't do the things that the church even promises itself to be at times in the church in America. Oftentimes where the place where Jesus said, these are my sheep, care for them, tend them, look after them. Oftentimes the very same thing exists in the church to say, We're not going to do those things. We're going to seek after the growth of this church, the growth of the numbers, the growth of the size of the building. In fact, we're going to create wonderful programs instead of care for your people. We're going to create concerts instead of create the worship of God. We're going to create this structure and system that is marvelous. And yet, what does God say? That's not the thing I'm after. So even in the church today, we need to hear these words and remind ourselves the thing that God's church promises, we have to constantly be reformed in the image of what God is doing, to have faith in Him, to trust Him, to say, I see where you're going. I see what you're doing. Let me repent of those ways in which the church has been something that it was never meant to be. Not defend it. To say, no, Jesus is building something very different. Let us build ourselves around that. That thing which it promises to be. So as the church continues to be built, we recognize this is not the work of our hands. God is not concerned that there are aspects of the church that don't match up. He is still building his church. And churches rise and fall. And God's church continues. You can think of the history of the Catholic Church, the emergent church, these churches, the mega church, these things that come and go that continue to grab our eyes and we say, what is going on here? And God continues to build his church and he helps his disciples to see clearly, to say, I all of a sudden see that that is not the thing. He's called us to something very different and it is going to be beautiful. Just as the disciples would walk out, it is going to be something you say, do you see all this? (laughs) Faith in God opens our eyes to this, but it also unites us to him. Faith in God is what unites us into this structure of the church, the building upon Christ the cornerstone. Let's read verses 22 to 25. It says this, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, your trespasses. We look at the work to be done in the temple here. And they would have certainly wondered, even if they saw it, even if they recognized that there was sin in the midst of something that seemed so good, even if they recognized it and saw it, they would have to say, how is this going to happen? This is quite the system that you're wanting to confront Jesus. In fact, it will oppose you with all of the power that it has and all of the authority of the government. You are going against something that is a superpower. How are you going to rebuild this temple or even tear it down? 
This is a fortress. There's no way to do this type of work. The massive system that was the temple seemed to be something that was unfixable, unchangeable. It was operating the way it was operating. And what does Jesus say? Something quite so simple. And I, there's different interpretations of what Jesus is talking about. But I think within the context, it's actually pretty clear to me. He's looking at the Temple Mount saying, if you look at the temple, everything that this is, the Temple Mount, if you were to say to that mountain, be, jump into the sea, you're asking whether I can tear it down? Yeah. Prayer, trust in God, the work of God to redeem His temple, to redeem His worship, to redeem His people. This is the creator of everything. This is the God who made every single person who's in it. This is the God who even made the mountain. If God wants to cleanse His temple, and you come to Him saying, Lord, help me with this work, He's going to say, go into the sea. We're going to move over here and rebuild. It's going to be quite literally that simple. The worship of God, the cleansing of the temple, the forgiveness of sins, these types of things that seem un... You're at an absolute impasse. There's no way to get beyond them. seems like this is unattainable work that God is actually saying. And yet, what is he saying? He's saying, this is not won by wars, fighting. This is not won by your cunning. This is won by the power of God. He says, have faith in God. Oftentimes, I admit, my faith doesn't start there. It says, well, how are we going to do this? If this is the case, I've got to figure it out. But the place Jesus turns them back, he says, have faith in God. Something so simple as seeing a fig tree die is miraculous, astounding, would, would baffle any one of us in this room. If we walked by and we saw that simple miracle, we'd say, I can't believe it. What you said actually happened. And Jesus is saying, yes. <laughs> That's the type of power that the God that I'm telling you to have faith in has. Over everything. As we see injustice, those opposing the rule and the purposes of God, what is their thought? It's not have faith in God. It's, I want to go flip some tables. <laughs> I want to go clean the house. I want to go make this right. I'm going to get in there and start getting after the work that God has called me to do. And yet you start to see what was going on here. There was a, an aspect that what was happening. They were not able to enter in and pray as they should to carry out the sacrificial system, to carry out the cleansing that the temple offered, to be right with God, to be made right with God, to be forgiven by God, to stand in His presence rightly. This was a huge deal for them, and it's a huge deal for us to say, how am I to be made right with God? And Jesus says, right relationship and worship for me comes through this. This is the symbol of the temple. You come here. This is the presence of God. This is where you come to commune with God, to be with God. And this is not what it is. You have faith with God, though. Forgive those who you have wronged against. God forgives you. God can do these works. God can do this. Forgive, pray, turn to God. And don't forget the one who does the cleansing. This is Jesus Christ himself. And oftentimes when it speaks to us of the work that we're to do, those in the church, the saints, it'll use what they often call a passive voice. And they'll call it a divine passive. And here actually when it talks about Jesus killing the fig tree and heading into the temple, it's not using a divine passive. This is Jesus himself actively going in and cleansing the temple. Jesus himself actively doing these things. This is God himself as the judge saying, I have authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He's saying, I'm going in and I am cleaning house. I am tearing down the temple that is mine. I get to do that. You come with me. 
Have faith in God. You trust me. Have faith in God. I am the one that you put your faith in. I am the one that you trust. Faith in God unites us to him. We receive forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, the power of God himself, the mind of God, the direction of God, all the things that we need and want as the people of God to worship him rightly. We are being built into something new. God is saying, I will have vengeance on those who've opposed me. I will vindicate my people. I will do these things, and I am building something better. Trust in me for this. You can be reminded even as it speaks of all that God is continuing to build. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of this. You see the picture being laid out of the sacrificial system where there was a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, where it was meant to be God's people being a blessing, carrying this out to the Gentiles. They were saying, no, you stay over here. We're going to go in here to the, where the important people are, and you stay out here. And Jesus is saying, I have broken down that wall, and in fact, the blessing is flowing out from my presence now, and it is being built upon all nations Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, and which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he who is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so he made... We have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I hope you hear what's happening here in Ephesians. God is saying, I am rebuilding on this cornerstone. That temple was torn down. I am rebuilding on Jesus through the teaching of the apostles, the prophets, the teaching of Jesus himself, carried forward through them, through the power of the Spirit. All of these things are being joined together, the members themselves being the building. And this is not built by human hands, but Christ himself. This is why we can continue to be the church in the hardest of circumstances. In areas within our world where the church is absolutely underground, there may not be any building to speak of. But the church is being built on the cornerstone. It's being shaped and formed. And when God opens our eyes to see it, we're all going to look at this building, which is the church, and say, that thing which didn't look so pretty is absolutely beautiful, absolutely astounding. That's the work that we're doing as we gather week in and week out at this place. We're being formed into the church It's not our physical structure. It's not the way in which we gather. It's not the rhythms in which we gather. It is Christ and Christ alone who gathers us together, sanctifying us, making us holy, righteous, teaching us how to live in love with one another. Those who we really can't stand. Any other circumstance, you'd say, I don't like these people. And yet God is building you together through His Spirit saying there is unity within the church. And actually, one of the things it says about the disciples of Jesus is like, those people love each other. (laughs) 
you'll be known as Jesus' disciples because of your love for one another, this bond of peace that exists that shouldn't actually exist. So when we fear that Jesus may be tearing down things that we love, pulling at the structures of our own lives, our church, our world, the things that we've kind of built up that are very comfortable to us, very safe, things that we know, this is what the gospel does. It enters in and it disrupts a few things in our world. It disrupts a few things in the way we like stuff to operate. <laughs> we have our rhythms, our patterns, the ways that we expect things to be done and said. And Jesus is saying, that is not your hope. Just recently, I met with a member of GCF um, who's heading off into the mission field, Ollie Widmer. Some of you know him, and he is doing some work that is uh, just fantastic. He has been here training in the States uh, for many years, and he's learning aviation to go do aviation in the mission field. And where he's heading, I actually didn't know this until I met with him, he's heading right into the heart of Afghanistan. So the church there, I mean, it's almost completely, if not completely, underground, so it can't meet like we meet. It can't exist like we exist here. In fact, he has to have his family live on a compound. They don't get to go out into the normal city. And he's got kids. And I'm sitting here listening to him as he's talking about this. And I'm at first a little bit excited, but then also a little fearful in my heart saying, yeah, it's not really for everybody though. Like, That's good for you, but don't ask that of me. That's good for you, but don't ask things of me. Don't you dare start to press over into my world and start to pull the things out of my life that I don't want you to mess with. And this was the own sin in my heart to get defensive. Just as the Pharisees got defensive to say, don't start messing with the stuff that I know and like and love. I've got modern plumbing and heat and insurance and retirement. I've got all these things starting to build and I've got plans. Now, what I'm saying is not that every single one of us is called to Afghanistan to do that mission work. God has placed that uniquely on Ollie to go do. And I think the thing that God started to reveal in my own heart was this didn't motivate me to, my first knee-jerk reaction was not to pray for him, to encourage him, to say, what are the areas in my life that might be disrupted as well? He had to have things in his own life disrupted to be willing to go do that. His wife had to have things in her life disrupted to go do that. They are giving up a lot. And the knee-jerk reaction often for us as believers, especially in America, is to say, don't you dare ask. Don't you dare mess with me. And yet it should be, how can I help with the mission of the church? What are things that might need, that have settled into place that might not need to be there what are ways that God might use me right here in my local neighborhood? It might be so simple as the Lord has called you to be a father, a mother, a husband. Sometimes that's fairly disruptive. To give of your life to do that job well. To give of your own pride. To give of your own things. Sometimes it's a neighbor Sometimes it's brothers and sisters in a church. Sometimes it's forgiveness. Very costly to forgive. Very costly to offer that type of thing to someone who's genuinely wronged you. Sometimes it's doing your job that you don't really want to do. It can be very costly to do that type of thing. And other saints that enter into those types of things, they should cause us to look at our own heart and say, are there things, Lord, that need to be disrupted? Are there things that I need to let you pull out and rebuild in my life right where I'm at? Maybe it is even sending us into those hard places in the world to say, the Lord has called me there. The Lord has called me to those types of unique works. This church should be sending missionaries to those types of things. This church should be calling those up into ministry to say, I'm going to take this message of the gospel somewhere where it's not currently being reached. So we don't want to even diminish the fact that God might do that, but he is certainly calling us to give up certain things within our lives to say, Lord, I have faith in you. That is going to cause a certain amount of fear 
and frustration, anger, uncertainty, as God starts to pull those things out. But it is also going to say, all of a sudden I see things I never saw before in my life. A selfishness that existed there. An anger. An uncertainty. Even a fear. And faith in God, you start to realize, I am being built into the church. In fact, it's less of a situation where it's like, oh man, this feels really unstable. If I give up one more thing, what's going to happen? In fact, you step into that type of faith with God, all of a sudden God says, yeah, I'm knocking it down and I'm rebuilding. It's a lot more stable, actually. It's a lot more secure than it was before. When you start to move into this position where you say, I'm going to step on fully and trust the Lord with my life, right here, that place where it felt like it was teetering, It's because we're saying, I have other things that I need to hold on to desperately. I'm going to stick it back in my pocket. I'm going to hold on to it just in case I need it. I'm not saying that I do personally have a perfect vision for every one of our lives, but the Lord certainly says, I see how I'm building this church. And there are ways that he is asking us to give up sin There's ways he's asking us on a daily, weekly, moment-by-moment basis to say, I'm turning away from that. I'm confessing this. I'm repenting of it. I don't want that anymore. In fact, as hard as it is to get rid of it, I'm going to get rid of it again and again. This is why we do this every single week. We confess sin. We believe the regular pattern of believers should be one of repentance to say, I am confessing of my sin, turning regularly. If believers are approached and saying, let's look at your sin, oftentimes we say, I don't know if I have anything to confess or repent of. The thing I've noticed in my own testimony, as I've grown in my faith in Jesus, actually I see just how perverse my sin was. When I was younger, I was like, I don't know that I see anything really that bad. The more in faith with Jesus you grow, oftentimes you see your sin to be just abominable. How could I have ever done that type of thing should be your response. I want it away from me. The more I look at Scripture, say, how could I have ever wanted that thing? This is far sweeter, far better, far more beautiful. That is the type of faith that Jesus is talking about, to say, trust in God. This is not to be manipulated as many do for your own benefit, to say, You can ask anything you want, you're going to get it. God's just going to give you all all the things you want. No, it's actually saying, as you have faith in God and you're seeking His purposes, God will accomplish those things. And there are those moments in your life, you look at a broken relationship, broken marriage, broken uh, relationship with kids, broken relationship within the church, and sometimes that actually feels just as hard and impossible as this temple to say there's nothing changing that heart. There is nothing that could get through there. Jesus is saying, if I've called you to this thing, have faith in me. Just like that withered fig tree. That is the work that God can do, and he can do it on immense levels, down to the very microscopic details and also to the universal level of all of creation is being united to him. May we not forget this morning that we serve a resurrected Christ. That thing that we celebrated, God has accomplished this. God is building his church. God is doing this work. It does exist in our midst, and it is beautiful. May we be encouraged to trust and have faith in God the way Jesus reminds us here this morning. Let's do pray. Father, we do come before you humbled. Your grace is lavished upon us as your people, showing us our own sin, revealing it to us, showing us just how much mercy you have given to us, and also showing us, Lord, just the perverse nature of our sin. Lord, help us to turn from those things, to turn away from those things. Lord, help us as a church not to be defined by things that have nothing to do with your purposes for the church. Help us to repent as a body of believers. 
Help us to repent with one another. Help us to repent individually. And Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom. Lord, I pray that there would be a comfort for all the believers here today. That Lord, they serve a God who sees them, who knows them, who's powerful. Even though he confronts sin, he is with them. Lord, you are with us. You are powerful. You are with us and you will accomplish all the things that you have said you will do in the church. Lord, help us to trust you in all this. We lift all this up to you as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the sweet blessings.